millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's the Wonky Show Summer Special. Level three results are out. We'll get across those. The National Student Survey is reported. We'll mop up the fallout. And we're looking ahead with optimism to the coming academic year. It's all coming up. The obsession with the sort of, you know, Tony Tony Blair-flavoured 50% target is, is, you know, a very good framing device for angry rhetoric around the universities, you know, around the, the sort of question around vocational qualifications and, and going into a trade and, and that sort of things is, is something that is very easy to be supportive of without really doing the hard yards of how we good paid professional careers that in, techn- in technical areas. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and joining me to familiarise ourselves with the summer's developments, four fabulous guests. In Walsall, Michael Salmon is News Editor at Wonky. Michael, your highlight of the summer? Can I pick some Spanish things? One was my lovely holiday in Tenerife and the other has been the Spanish elections, which I'm sure everyone has has been been keeping an eye on. Gracias. In Ambleside, David Kernahan is Deputy Editor on Key. DK, your highlight of the summer. Well, I have to say, not getting up in the morning and writing a daily is always up there every summer for me as a real genuine highlight. But I've been getting to do some bits and pieces of music got a new guitar ramp. It's all good for me. In Sirencester this week, Debbie McVitie is editor at Wonky. Debbie, your highlight of the summer? Well, I've been enjoying doing some things around the house. So switching my children's bedrooms and getting to throw out lots of things and having a big clear out all at the same time. So that's that's been pretty fun. And in Grantham this week, Mark Leach is editor-in-chief at Wonky. Mark, your highlight of the summer? Oh, well, thanks, Jim. As you know, I've been deep in the rebuild of, of Wonky's digital platforms, our new website, briefings and everything else. Long promise, but we are getting getting ever closer after a concerted effort over the summer. Exciting times. So, yes, we start this week with exam results and admissions. Level three results are out, places are being taken up, clearing hotlines are burning, and the scramble is on, Michael. It's, you know, it's been a big, ex- sort of exciting time for the sector and, you know, somewhat demoralising time for the sector, as it just increasingly seems to be every year. We've had a spate of negative press coverage, all with this sort of focal point of of exam results, A-level results, vocational qualifications, SQAs in Scotland. You know, the actual data that we've had coming out and is still coming out, we've had the first day of clearing this morning. You know, it doesn't look too dissimilar from last year, really. Everything's down a little bit. And really, as UCAS have done a very good job of, of, of showing it's you know, everything that might be a worry if it was a year-on-year fall repeatedly, you know, is actually quite generally, you know, comparable in a good way to 2019, the last normal summer back when we had one of those, you know, so a slightly higher proportion of students have got into their first choice university, a a lower proportion have missed their offer and and are free to be placed in clearing, you know, and, and overall, despite all the talk of declining numbers and university being less attractive or should, you know, ought to be less attractive, the number, the total number securing places is, is, as I said, up on the last number the last the last comparable year or the last normal year. DK, you're obviously across the numbers. What can you tell us? So really interesting thing this morning from the first day of clearing activity. It's been a really busy clearing. Summing up 
approaching 15,000 applicants have found a place by in clearing already after one day. This being largely because a lot of people out there are missing their offers. We've got the A-level grades roundabout back to 2019, which means they're back on the same curve that they've been on since 2010, because that is the optimum grade, apparently, for level three qualifications in England. This means that institutions who didn't quite believe the government that they were going to do this have made slightly higher offers that have not been met. There's a lot of people in clearing a lot of institutions and courses that you might not otherwise expect. Another interesting thing is within international students, there's a lot more international students in the system without places than in previous years in terms of a proportion, which because international student offers don't tend to be based on level three performance because the UK, one of a small number of countries that has these kind of high high stakes 18 year old exams. It's surprising that institutions have been kind of hedging their bets a bit. They've been thinking, okay, how many home students are we going to get? There's a lot. I mean, I know that a lot of institutions are having emergency meetings about admissions and their admission strategies at the moment. That's probably going to continue as clearing goes on. It's going to be a really interesting next few days, I think. And have I got this right, that it's only England out of the four nations in the UK that has kind of returned to pre-pandemic allocations of grades, whereas everywhere else is still kind of smoothing off the impacts of COVID? I mean, everywhere else is still moving back towards the grades initially were. I, I, I suppose England have been more kind of bolshy about it, really. They've said, no, it's going to be absolutely it. And if you if you look at the grades, there's slightly more A stars than you might expect. But other than that, it's pretty much bang on 2019. It is really quite startling. It does make you question the value of a system that seems to want to keep the, the number of grades in each pot exactly the same year on year. It's a a confusing one, but it, it appears to be where we are as a country. I mean, overall, I mean, we're only two days in now, right? But overall, uh, to what extent are we in a position where the sort of press coverage that everyone will have read in the kind of week run-up has, has, has kind of been accurate? You know, to what extent are the, are the lines that people have been running in the broadsheets that the kind of reality? Because often there's a, there's a significant difference once you actually get the UCAS numbers, isn't there? Yeah, we do get a week or so of uh, kind of university sledging every year. We've had that already. We've had an... A number of people. I mean, Debbie's taken James Kirk up to task. He was in the Times saying that universities are basically in a doom spiral. I'm sure she's got a lot more to say about that, but that was a bizarre article. I don't think we're in that doom spiral. A lot of people are concerned that the numbers of people entering universities are down slightly again on last year. We've had a bunch of bumper years, but we're still substantially above 2019. And just before just before I go to Debbie, this thing about, obviously, one of the narratives of the past couple of years was that a certain part of the sector was having to expand in order to kind of meet the offers that it had made. And lots of people did very, very well. And is there, is there any evidence that that has kind of leveled off or that, you know, crucially, the kind of selecting universities, the high tariff universities are reducing their intake or is it leveled off or do we not know yet? So interestingly enough, on the day of the A-level results, numerically, the number of students going into higher tariff universities from the UK was 
was down, but proportionally was up. So it is kind of very much, I'm reading this as a back to normal, that we are slightly above, again, proportionally where we were in in 2019 and 2020, which again is what we'd expect. There's been a general trend over a number of years towards higher tariff providers expanding. But what's interesting, I think, particularly is the lower tariff ones are the ones that are really being squeezed. DK, can I can I have a point of clarity, actually, on this one? Because it occurs to me that, of course, being a higher tariff provider is pretty much a sort of self-appointed identity. You know, you can raise your tariff and thus become a higher tariff provider. Is, is the kind of, I guess, trend towards the higher tariff something to do with more universities actually saying, well, let's jack up the tariff? And I would all, you know, and, and you know, I know that you've been thinking about this because, of course, you published that extremely popular piece on the site last week showing how, actually, the published tariff and grades, the entry grades that students actually hold, can often be quite quite different. You know, and certainly when you know when there's the wider talk of admissions reform and fairness in admissions, trying to perhaps encourage universities to be a bit more transparent about you know, what grades they will accept has obviously always been part of the conversation. So this kind of idea about you know there being a higher tariff institution and of course and that being a sort of fixed thing, I think is is not necessarily something that's true. But I feel like you might know the answer to that. You're absolutely right to call that out. I mean, higher tariff is often seen as an indication of quality. You think, okay, that's the good universities and more people are going to good universities. So that's good, right? Lots of definitions of a good university, lots of ways of defining, in fact, what a higher tariff university is. Are we using the qualifications that institutions actually accept or the ones that they make offers, that they initially make offers for? I mean, anybody can be a higher tariff provider and put scary looking grades in their prospectus. It's a different matter entirely think, okay, we can recruit students only with these grades. Uh, This year, across the board, I think institutions are going to be taking lower tariffs than they might have expected and that they had done over the next couple of years. The, The more selective providers, which is what this is really a measure of, tend to fish from the pool of higher tariff applicants. This is mainly because they get more applicants altogether, they get more people interested in them, they can make that kind of a choice. But I'm not sure to what extent tariff is a meaningful distinction on an institutional level. You do really have to look at courses, and we're not going to get that data until we get to the release of the uh, the end of cycle provider level data, which we don't get, of course, until early January. It's quite hard, of course, to become the you know the prime energy of higher education, I guess. But the other question I was going to ask DK was the allegate. Well, one of the allegations. There's a number of allegations from Iran, but the allegation that has been floating around some parts of the press has been, well, okay, there's, there's quite a low number of places for home domiciled students. But if you're an, if you're if you want to come into a course from, from another country, then there are plenty of places for you. Is there any evidence that, you know, providers are kind of holding down the number of 9250s in order to get the 18 and 19K? Now, this is really interesting in terms of the number of accepted applicants on results day, because of course, most international students don't go through clearing. They don't apply with say levels. That's actually down proportionally and down numerically for higher tariff providers and indeed down numerically for all tariff providers over last year. There are less international students in the system than before. We can see from the data that the lower tariff institutions are the ones that are starting to grow a bit in terms of their international intake. Higher tariff providers, perhaps thinking of that criticism they got last year, are seem to be moving away away from international students. I mean, there's still a big part of the uh, 
sector. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're not world. really looking at postgrads substantially here, are we? Or really yeah, I mean, postgrad is where the, the action is. Undergrad, it does feel like we're moving away slightly. It's possible that maybe ministers have been putting on pressure behind the scenes. It's possible that there's been a couple of snotty letters from Susan that we've missed at the Office for Students. So, yeah, it's a really striking development that for years and years, the implication has been that the higher tariff providers, your Russell Group's rest of them, have been stocking up on international students. That seems to be unwinding a bit. Now, Debbie, while we're on, while we're talking about the media, you've been reading all of the, 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 the kind of stuff in the doom cycle. It's really worse this year, do you think? I don't know, and of course, you know, it's all. It, it, I'm, I'm going off vibes as much as as much as any of the kind of media commentators are. So, I'm, except I'm vibing off what they're saying, and they're vibing off, you know, what they think is going on with the sector. I mean, obviously, it is all. You know, result, results day has always been this kind of lightning rod for anxiety. So, you always have, you know, back in the day, you had these stories about, you know, kids with four four A's not getting into Oxbridge, and that was the kind of the big worry was that, you know, you could achieve, but still not, you know, still not, you know, get get into your kind of dream institution. Remember that Gordon Brown scam? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the Laura Spence. But the story, but I think that. But I think what is interesting to me is how that kind of mood music has changed because it used to be about saying you might not achieve your dream of getting into university, even if you work really hard. And that was the kind of worry. That was the kind of cultural anxiety about, you know, about meritocracy kind of not delivering. And, you know, and, and the kind of big thing was about access, wasn't it? And that, you know, those were the stories. The stories that we're seeing now are about, I guess, more that kind of big existential question of is it worth it? Is it worth going to university at all? Are there, should, should, we, should, should, should young people just be getting a job? You know, how can we get them, how can young people get the most value out of their university? experience how can you know maybe they should be doing apprenticeships you know we had we had uh, the secretary of state julian keegan in the times saying you know don't worry if you don't make it to university you can always do an apprenticeship and i think in all of this stuff and i, and I, I genuinely i don't think it's bad faith i don't think that there's you know i, I think you know there's always politics going on of course there is i don't but i don't i don't think that people have decided suddenly that you know university is a bad thing but i think people are worried about what's going on with universities i think but I don't think the facts kind of bear that out. So if you look at, yeah, broad, broad, broadly, if you look at what's going on in terms of results and progression to university, it's all sort of, you know, nothing to see here. International students are not really squeezing out home students. You know, there's a little bit of ebb and flow in terms of, you know, more students being placed through clearing and all of that's really interesting. But, you know, as, as DK says, we're, we're probably looking at a kind of, you know, reverse, reversion to the norm here, not, a, you know, not, not a revolution. And yet we've seen this spate of stories about worrying about international students and rising, rising numbers of international students, worrying about students being accepted to courses and then dropping out because, you know, the courses aren't delivering or, or they're, they're just not able to kind of, you know, meet the standard. Worrying about students' mental health and well-being while at university and our universities doing enough. Worrying about, you know, if universities are recruiting international students, does that mean they'll just stop valuing home students? And given that universities are quite, you know, increasingly quite underfunded, you know, what, what does this all mean? And it does seem to me that there's a kind of, you know, that the kind of cultural narrative does just seem to be that whatever the facts are, it, you know, that they, they always seem to reinforce this idea that universities are really struggling, that, you know, it's hard to get value, it's hard for students to have a good experience. And that's a really hard thing for universities to counter, you know, with evidence, because actually it's not about the evidence, you know. Tell you what I do think is interesting, because obviously, you know, one of the things that people will keep an eye on is the kind of national media, right? But the local media and the regional media is as kind of positive and happy that people have got into their dream university and often their dream university is not in the Russell Group and so on as they've ever been. Is this a, you know, is this a sort of... Is, is this just a kind of artifact of, of the current tone around Westminster that, you know, the country is going to hell in a handcart and it just so happens to be uni universities week this week rather than, you know, boats week or. My, and I think, I think the thing, the thing I kind of really kind of wrestle with is about how seriously to take this stuff. And I think, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm taking any particular commentator to task in my article. I'm kind of, I guess, observing what I see as a sort of trend and I'm trying to kind of understand why that trend exists. So, you know, 
I think, yeah, you're probably right that there is a kind of broad, a broad, a broader trend. And I suppose just thinking from the perspective of if, I, if I'm a comms team in a university, what's my response? What's my kind of how do how do I how do I make sense of this? How do I kind of come back from that? And I think actually that your point about the local press is a really is a really opposite one because I don't think you know universities UK will continue to do a very good job in saying things like actually all the future graduate jobs, you know, they had a report out the other week, it's going to be an awful lot of growth in the graduate jobs market. We're going to need people with graduate skills. Let's, you know, let's sort of accept that and prepare for it. You know, these, these are really sort of practical policy recommendations. This is not mood music about the general kind of, you know, malaise of society and kind of universities' role as a kind of cultural signifier in that context. But there does, I think there does need to be a sort of a sort of chipping away, that kind of broad kind of vibes-based narrative that is, is actually not very well evidenced. And I think you probably do that in the kind of, at the small scale and, you know, the proliferation of good small stories rather than trying to kind of combat that at a kind of grand scale. Mark, I'm sure you have seen the, uh, the piece from Jonathan Simmons last weekend where effectively what Jonathan reckons is going on here is because a hell of a lot of people in the sort of, you know, the, the, the glitterati have got kids who've been hit by the marking boycott, it feels to them like the entire sector is going to hell in a handcart and add in, you know, some other bits around international students and, and accommodation and so on. And for the people who sort of, you know, talk about this stuff and, and are interested in this stuff, it does feel worse than for everyone else. One of my theories is that, you know, about 75% of all higher education policy for the last five years has been designed solely and specifically for readers of the Times newspaper. And with the, re- with the remaining 25% for readers of the Telegraph. <laughs> remaining 25% readers of, readers of wonky.com. No, I think <laughs> the point is, if you just read the Times, which is, you know, the people you're talking about largely there, then you're going to have a really, really skewed, really skewed idea about what goes on in universities. The former education editor of the Times told me this herself a, a few years ago. She said they, her brief from the editor was to create panic amongst middle class parents about about their status, about their life choices, about everything, because... That is, that is. I mean, if you, you know, there's a bit of tin, tin hat stuff, tin foil hat stuff going on here. But if you want to zoom out really far, you know, you might argue some sort of grand plan from the Murdochs. I think it's probably a bit, probably a bit much. What it is part of is is a long campaign by elements of the Conservative Party to denigrate liberal institutions that are not helpful to their electoral success in the future. And universities are obviously right smack in the middle of that for for a number of. For a number of reasons, the data backs it up across a number of fronts. Um, you're much less likely to vote conservative if you go to university. That's not because, like the Times would tell you, university lecturers are um, indoctrinating you with their, their left-wing ideas. I mean, it's for a host of complicated reasons, but we don't have time. We don't have time to get into. The point is, the point is that this is a partly organised, partly interest aligning between different actors here in kind of media, business, think tankery, politics, where, as I say, they like to keep people, you know, really, really concerned about what happens in universities. Michael, is a lot of this just a sort of remix of too many people are going to university? Yeah, definitely. I think the obsession with the sort of, you know, Tony Blair, Tony Blair flavoured 50% target is, is you know, a very good framing device for angry rhetoric around the universities, you know, around the, the sort of question around vocational qualifications and, and going into a trade and, and that side of things is, is something that is very easy to be supportive of without really doing the hard yards of how we, you know, properly get an apprenticeship system that works, how we actually, you know, find good paid professional careers that in, techn- in technical areas. I think it is. There's been a couple of in- interesting things this summer. I thought the thing about university dropout rates getting flung back into the mix by the Times and Gillian Keegan was interesting. 
I think because obviously the big story this year really has been about schools and the school system, you know, and what's happening to people's grades. Why are grades falling at schools? Is it a sign, you know, the government's being too strict, being unfair? Is it punishing parents and their children? You know, to see universities getting flung in there, you know, for those who haven't seen it, it was, you know, this we heard that courses you know some courses at some providers have 30 percent dropout it's like one or something right but you know and this that we were told was linked to you know overly generous a-level grading you know so there's that sort of aspect to it as well of sort of you know students who are you know being promised too much being too fragile there's the sort of mental health aspect to things as well you know but yeah i think certainly that and the you said around around too many students going the international aspect you know that really it's these sort of big big trends in in wider politics that are influencing a lot of these these arguments great well plenty of coverage on the site on all of this for now, let's see who's been blogging for us this summer. Hi, my name is Gareth, and this week on Wonky, I have been blogging about the disparity in support given to part-time and distance learning students. When higher education policy is discussed, these students are often forgotten. A large difference in the support provided by the English student finance system exists in comparison to what is available for full-time students. This demonstrates barriers to those who see part-time or distance learning as their only option. With the development of the lifelong loan entitlement, we coordinated with student leaders from 27 student unions to send an open letter to the Department for Education, calling on them to make changes to student finance support to encompass part-time and distance learning students. By highlighting the students particularly affected by this disparity, I make a case that now is the time for the government to make positive changes that result in a more equitable support system. Now, the new and improved National Student Survey reported its results last week, and judging by the press releases, everything is amazing, Mark. Yes, this is the National Student Survey. This year's edition came out later than usual. Normally it's in July, ends up in August, right right smack up against A-level results day, much to the consternation of um, many people in the sector. And it's, as, as you've written on the site, Jim, has been a little bit of a mess this year for a host of reasons that I think we'll dive into. Overall, the uh, response rate is fine. But um, some varying omissions in the in the questions, most notably the overall satisfaction question, means that it's pretty hard to read across what's going on. And because of the because of the way the questions have been rejigged this year, universities are very much picking and choosing what is a measure of success or not for the for the PR that, that comes out of it. So quite a quite a kind of mixed mixed results day in, in that respect, and quite confusing, I think, for students. Not exactly clear, you know, where what is successful in NSS results because everyone can claim a degree of success here because of the way the the questions have been have been have been reformatted so a bit of an odd one but some other nuggets to pull out the freedom of speech question which is new students actually really happy uh, with that they're able to express themselves uh, they, they feel they're able to express themselves on their course so that sort of slightly undermines the enormous legislative and policy juggernaut that has has been driving through the corridors of power for the last couple of years. DK, in the uh, in OFS's review, one of the objectives was if they removed the summative satisfaction question in England, then we would get far fewer kind of league table position type stories. How's that uh, particular objective panning out? Well, it's been a blinding success if you happen to work for THE, who decided to knock together a league table in their garage with a bit of gaffer tape and a few spare nails they had knocking about. And everybody's just used that, apart from the ones that didn't do too well, who decided to invent their own league table of the questions they cared about where they happened to come out rather well in. It's been an absolute delight to see 
I mean, the thing that really shocked me in all of this, the press release and the news story we got from the office to students. I mean, this should be their golden thing. They've always had NSS as kind of a a legacy thing. It's been going since hefty days for years and years and years. And this is the first time, the first chance they've had to make it their own, to say, okay, we might not be finding out the truth of what's happening in the sector. Here is the truth. I mean, and the truth is, if you compare, as you're told not to, positivity with percentage agree, the sector's a lot happier than we previously perspectived. Students are a lot more pleased with a lot more of their course. And I kind of get the impression that was not what was being looked for by ministers, by Ian Mansfield, who everybody knows, commissioned the existing review. And a lot of the changes that have been made, including the tweets to the question responses that we'll get into and the removal of the summative question, are pretty much at his beck and call. It's difficult to see what's really been achieved with this. We know, for instance, if we go to the question scales, that students are particularly exercised about the organisation of their course and the way they feel that their comments about their course are being acted on. This is all particularly notable for uh, students in medicine and nursing. Nursing students especially are really concerned about the organisation of their course. That's a real low point across the sector. Any provider you look at, you look at organisation, you look at nurses and midwifery, and it's right down there. There's a similar issue, apprentices, they kind of seem to feel like they don't know what's going on from one week to the next. That's an interesting finding, I think. Other than that, we've lost the opportunity to draw time series. We can't really compare this with last year despite the fact that I just have. And we can't really say, okay, what has been the impact of the cost of living crisis, of the industrial action, of the aftermath of COVID? These are students, of course, who have experienced the COVID restrictions during their first and second years and are just graduating, graduating off the back of that. It would be great to have a point for that. It would be great even if they'd done like a little sample of the overall cohort that had them fill in the old NSS. So we could at least start to know how these questions compare with the way students have felt previously. I think the lack of interest from ministers and from the OFS speaks quite eloquently of the fact that this has been really messed up. We have lost a lot of really important data and we've not really gained much of interest off the back of it. Debbie, does this make sense when I say, I think on one level you would want a massive survey like this to be agenda setting, right? Agenda setting for OFS in terms of its priorities in the year ahead, agenda setting for providers in terms of areas of improvement. It just feels like the opposite this year. And maybe I'm just kind of missing what's happening below the surface. And maybe that's because it's August. I I think that's what you would like it to be, Jim. I think that's kind of, and I think think that kind of, I think that that derives from, you know, being around for the last 20 years and seeing the ways that NSS has been used often really positively as a lever for change in institutions, as a way of kind of convening conversations around issues in learning and teaching. And I think, you know, if, you know, I too have been around for much of that time. And I think back to the, you know, the, the big review that went on in sort of 2012-ish, where it was the real kind of, fo- it really focused in on learning and teaching because because the kind of intention was, was that it should be used for those sorts of purposes, that it should set an enhancement agenda. OFS has been quite clear that the, you know, the questions it's asking NSS relate to its monitoring of quality. It's a monitoring tool, not an agenda setting tool. And, you know, at the end of the day, I suppose, you know, it's always, it's always been a bit of one and a bit of the other. And, and it's pivoting more towards, you know, the, the monitoring end of things. And 
you, you and I may feel that that's a kind of wasted opportunity, but I mean, that's just not where the where the policy conversation is, I guess. And I think particularly some of the, I think I think a particular, you know, from, from my money, particularly, you know, this conversation is quite well rehearsed in some ways, you know, failing to ask about students' sense of community and just seems like seems like absolutely an, an enormous problem, given that that's the kind of the thing that is really challenging universities right now. To, to not have data on that just feels like such a huge kind of, you know, loss to the sector. And Michael, this, this free speech thing, let's play this with a straight bat, right? So, you know, Ian Mansfield's critique, you know, former SPAD, the, the, he, he was kind of, when he was at DfE, driving the initial review of the NSS. His view is, look, if there are, if there are 14% of students that are really negative, we shouldn't dismiss that. Because it's not like the other questions. It's 14% of students saying that they feel silenced on campus. And if that's, I don't know, people that are gender critical or Brexiteers or whatever, then that, for him, indicates that there's a real problem with, with campus culture. But, you know, is he right? There's the question. I think it's sort of indicative of a question that is very hard to do just in percentage terms, that, you know, just kind of cognitively, what result, what answer were we looking for? You know, if it was, if the negativity had been 5%, would we still have had people saying, you know, 5% of students unable to express themselves, that's terrible. You know, that's, you know, this is what we should be, everyone should feel free to. You know, if it was 3%, how would people have reacted? If it was 25%, it's that sort of thing where it's not, A, it's hard to answer in just kind of black and white, you know, somewhat very mildly disagree sort of questions. And also, you know, it's one where we need to, you know, as soon as possible, really, we need to be able to see some of the some of the breakdown, some of the demographics, you know, because the assumption, as we've been over many, many times, is that, you know, this is the students who are feeling silenced are the ones with the, you know, with the sort of Brexit, pro-Brexit views or, you know, pro-conservative or and so on. Whereas I think the assumption uh, we have is that a good deal of that 14% will actually be, you know, students who are not confident to speak up, students who just, you know, for, for all kinds of personal and socioeconomical reasons don't feel that they are free to express their views on campus in the way that you know the sort of poorly designed question doesn't quite you know manage to pin down properly great now plenty of stuff on the site about all that now every week on the show we look back at how things were and how things came to be with academic registrar and sector historian mike ratcliffe here's the hidden history of he Expanding our universities is one of those things that has been an issue all the way through the history. How do we how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that there comes a point where government needs to expand our universities and think about how it wants to organise that? Now, less so in a market type system, but when we had planning bodies, how should we do that? Now, the biggest set of expansion came straight after the Second World War, where they knew in advance that returning students were going to come back, either they already gone off to war, they'd been off into a variety of different occupations, and they were going to want to have higher education. The Americans handled this through their GI Bill, but we set about just expanding our universities. The interesting bit is that he started planning for this in an active way in 1943. So before we've even invaded Normandy, the British university sector is planning to have won the war and how it's going to cope with all the students who are going to come back. So excellent planning from the UGC. And off it goes. It works out that actually it doesn't really need to expand the number of universities because most of the universities it's been funding have been really small all the way through the 30s. Again, if we think we have trouble now, try running a university through the Great Depression when most of the students have to pay their fees. So they've not expanded as much as they thought, so they were ready for them all to expand. The only difference is that the chair of the UGC, Walter Mobley, is persuaded to let the University College of North Staffordshire start. 
And so A.D. Lindsay persuades him that it would be a really good idea to set up a new kind of university. And Mobley is very concerned about how the war has gone, how it's impacted on universities, and he thinks we need new types of students. And so they're allowed to run a four-year course, predominantly residential, an opportunity to have a foundation course with them. So it's trying to do something different. And they get going, and everyone else starts to expand. And then we go through the 50s, just slowly upgrading universities. So the university colleges become universities. They all expand. There's a bit of a backlash, if you think about um, Kingsley Amy, and lucky Jim and his more means worse thing but generally this is the idea that we can continue by the end of the decade it's clear we need more universities they exceed to a bid from Sussex to set up a new university college at Brighton but then having got to that stage they have a pause and think it's probably worth having a think about setting up new types of universities and then starts this marvelous thing this bidding competition to have universities so the bidding competition to have new universities is an excellent and really exciting example of how British university planning worked. They set up a subcommittee. Great and the good come on the subcommittee. They happily sit together and work out what they should do. Now, people have been writing in saying, hello, can I have a university for a while now? So they've got a file already of towns and cities that said, can we have a university, please? So they're ready to go. So they've got a group of people they can contact and say, are you still interested in having a university? And they work out what the criteria are for having a good university. It needs plenty of land in order to expand. It needs to have good access to schools so that staff will come and let their kids go to those schools. It needs to have a certain amount of industry nearby and communications to other universities, but there's no kind of fixed idea of what they should do. They also don't have a fixed idea of where they should be, so they just let the applications come in and then sort them out. So different local authorities spring up with ideas and write in, sending in their different uh, bids, some from rather unlikely places. So for quite a long time, the one making the running in the northwest was Blackpool. We're going to have the University of Blackpool. That attracted quite a lot of comment because Blackpool was a slightly challenging place. And so people had different views on this. And the best bit of that is someone who cheerfully wrote into the UGC saying, I think, he says, I beg to strongly oppose the current suggestion that a university for the northwest of England should be established at or on the outskirts of Blackpool. A university is supposed to be a place where young people absorb culture and learning, not spivery and paganism. He goes on to say he can't imagine a worse place to put a university apart from Soho. Now, it turns out that Lancashire starts to move more in the direction of Lancaster itself. They acquire some land, Bellrig, and Lancaster gets a nod over Blackpool. But we go through these independent writing-in exercises. So there's a a businessman who's driving past Stamford in Lincolnshire. And he hears that people of Stamford might be quite interested in having a university. They're one of the places that had a, a university suppressed in the Middle Ages. And he gets really involved in this. And he effectively becomes the leading light of this constant bid to have a university for Stamford. And they get quite a long way down the, the thinking. One of the key reasons is that Stamford's got a new bypass, so it's got plenty of land, uh, it's been redeveloped, and you can think about having a university. And there's a whole published report on why it would be a good thing for the University of Stamford to get going. And these keep going through. So there's a, a bid for the University at Glastonbury. This nice chap writes in and says it'd be great to build a new university city of Avalon next to Glastonbury and create a new university city. Now, he doesn't get anyone else supporting him, but there on the UGC file is his nice letter and the very polite letter back from the, the civil servants of the UGC saying, well, that's that's very interesting. Do, do follow up with some more details. So you go through these kind of stages and, and there is a long list of places that at some point are considered to have a new university. Some of whom, that's fine, they, get, they go and get their university. So we have 
bids from Bournemouth and Carlisle and Chatham and Chester and there's one from Coventry which is obviously quite successful but Plymouth and Salisbury and Stamford and Stevenage and Thanet Thanet is one of the ones that makes one of the early running again but in the end it's, it's passed over in terms of, of Canterbury so you get this kind of wonderful pickup of these things and the files are just great as you go through them and you get this different information sent in by these people trying to say well can we have a university place so the best correspondence I found on the file is from the Swindon people so the Swindon people start by this very apologetic letter from the town clerk saying people in Swindon have asked me to write I'm not sure personally about doing this but what's the process and then he kind of gets more into it and that Swindon say well one of the things we want to do is is deal with the fact that there's a perception that we're quite a dreary town and a university might be quite good for us so they, they kind of talk about how this might go through and his correspondence backwards and forwards goes on and on over about four years because because they don't quite get going in time and slowly you know it's clear that other people are getting their universities but but they're not so by the end when it's quite clear that there aren't going to be any more universities this is this is sad little letter in from the town clerk to the UGC please do not groan too deeply when you receive this letter I'm not going to harass you I know that nothing can be done until the government announcement has been made about new universities and he goes on to say well we perhaps we could use a new bit of land it might be a better bet for, for our new Swindon University uh, and he ends it in a sad little side off now please don't toss this into the waste paper basket now the good news is that it was all dutifully considered by the UGC it's still lovingly kept on the file Swindon did not get to have its university the cutoff had cut and the government had changed its mind on how many universities it wanted because at that point the new Labour government decides that's it no more universities we're going to stop approving them we've got enough students into the planning period millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom like Evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option I never really was a salad guy that's just not who I am but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I will have no more. Now, finally this week, we've all got up in the attic and dusted off our respective crystal balls. Let's start with you, Michael. What's coming down the track? Kind of interesting what's coming up in, in, in the world of research. And I mean, certainly over the summer, we've not once but twice had had sort of splashes saying that Horizon Association is imminent. And that, it, you know, the mo- more recent one, which I think was in the time said, that, you know, that it's going to be announced in the autumn. We'll, we'll you know, we'll, we'll pinch ourselves if that happens. But there is a lot of stuff pending now. I mean, we're waiting for consult, you know, responses to these big, big reports into the research system. Nurse, Grant, Tickell, you know, t- t- Adam Tickell on research bureaucracy. We've heard, you know, the, the government response was finalized back in May and they've still not released it. They're looking to maybe release them all together in a sort of cohesive way that, you know, addresses all these all these issues identified. You know, there's, there's the PGR New Deal and and particularly ar- around REF, where, you know, we've got a consultation open into October, but then, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of debate, you know, not least on our sites, but across the sector around, you know, the, the, f- the future direction of re- research assessment. It's going to be a very interesting time, I think. I mean, when it first came out, this sort of move towards more assessment of research, culture, environment, you know, the sort of systems, I think we've broadly got quite a warm reception across the sector. And I, I feel like more recently, you're starting to see a little bit... Uh, 
you know, about people thinking, is this really what we want for our for our research assessment exercises? You know, this this research outputs taking a you know a minority share of the assessment, and I think I think these debates are going to run and run. Yeah, so it could be a really interesting autumn for for research and the sort of horizon pioneer choice that's sitting on Rishi Sunak's desk. We think is is obviously the real wild card that could you know if it does emerge that Horizon Association is not happening, if that finally finally gets just moved properly off the table, that's that's going to kickstart a period of of enormous activity in the research system. You know, I think probably by this point everyone's just hoping that there'll be a decision one way or the other, and we don't have another three months of just you know occasional stories in Politico that don't go anywhere and you know and 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 moving down the line. Debbie, what have you uh, penciled into the grid? One thing is that we're going to see the fruits of everyone's thinking about how generative AI is impacting assessment and then of course kind of a bit of pre-assessment around around learning and teaching. So I think we've moved from a sort of a bit of a slight panic and quite quite a lot of anxiety about how that's going to change things to quite a sort of fruitful, sensible conversation about how to adjust assessments and, and pedagogy to account for this new technology. So I think that'll be really interesting to see rolling out. The other thing I think people should look out for is well-being. So we know that Edward Peck is chairing a task force, a government task force on students' mental health. There's going to be lots of discussions about things like personal tutoring models, the use of learning analytics to to track students and, and, you know, to what extent universities should be expected to adopt that as a model and various kind of associated debates. So that's all going to be coming up. DK, what's uh, on your mind? Well, you might remember, Brian, about this time last year, we were staring down the barrel of Liz Truss' premiership. And my prediction coming out of the summer was, you know what, she might have a crack at abolishing the office for students. A year on, Liz Truss has been and gone, apparently. I can barely remember it, to be honest. And we're looking down the barrel of the DFE triennial review of the OFS, which is going to be informed by a report about the work of the OFS from the House of Lords Industry and Regulators Committee, which we're expecting back end of September, I think. And all of this is added to the rumours swirling around the sector that the Institute for Government itching to have a crack at the work of the OFS as well, uh, probably slightly after the IRC report. So everybody is lining up to have a crack at the OFS from the government to parliament. Now, you wouldn't, you'd think if it was just one of these things, the FE might choose to brazen it out. Oh, we're quite happy with the OFS. We're going to give them more guidance here and there. This is made a bit different this year because the cabinet need to come up with some stuff to put into the King's speech, which is due late October, early November this year. And this being a government that is dying on its arse, they need to come up with some stuff that people might potentially be interested in. Now, everybody loves higher education and indeed a large number of ministers have been queuing up in the popular press to take a pop at the sector and how terrible it is. You can't really do anything about that if you happen to believe the voices in your head that tell you the sector is terrible and that the public is broadly agreed with you on this, apart from make regulatory intervention. And what bigger regulatory intervention could they be than coming up with a new regulator and sorting something out like that? There's been lots of questions raised in the IRC, IRC about the independence of students, the way it works for students, the way it actually does the job of regulating, the way it communicates to the sector, the way it reports or otherwise, most often otherwise, on the investigations that it does. We're still waiting for something on the University of Sussex, which was apparently a massive free speech problem, although I know it's something that doesn't appear to be particularly borne out by the National Student Survey. And the 
whole load of other things that I've just not reported. So there are a lot of changes that could be made in a little tightly defined piece of primary legislation. This fits in with the UK-wide mood, of course. There's going to be reform in Scotland, or at least a government response to that. We're looking at the birth of CETA um, in Wales, and that's going to be very exciting if you see it as kind of a, a kinder, gentler office for students, if you will, as a replacement for HEFCU. It's, it's an entire season of regulation debates, and I'm in my happy place. Now, Mark, just before I come to you, I've spent the week with students' union staff at a conference with Livia, and our spidey senses are picking up really very serious issues issues around student homelessness in far more providers than even we thought. So our guess is that that might also interface with a kind of wider student accommodation crisis. Cost of living, harassment and sexual misconduct, I guess he's going to go hard on regulating at least at least in theory. Do you think any of that will sort of feed into the grander narratives that I guess you'll have your mind on in terms of the, you know, the coming election? I'd like to say yes, but I think we all know the answer is no. Students repeatedly fall through the cracks when it comes to policymaking in Whitehall and in political parties and the debates tend to not go much further than around maintenance support and tuition fees and that end of things. There are obviously serious issues that intersect with all sorts of things, as you say, housing's, you know, number one, but it has been for a couple of years now for a bunch of different reasons. And you know, Whitehall and, and policymaking is just that dysfunctional, I'm afraid. And and you know, you can you can have whole, you know, conversations with people responsible for universities and government and you know, they'll say, Well, you know, student homelessness is a department, you know, take it somewhere else and you go to that department, go to the housing department, they say, Oh, well, it's just a student's issue. Better take it up with the department for education, you know, and it just goes it's, it's worse than trying to get worse than trying to get your broadband fixed with Virgin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's you're stuck in a loop. Students are stuck in a loop. It's a it's a ludicrous failure of the British state, that situation. We've written about it before on the site. And you know, we'd hope that a change of government is an opportunity to potentially reset that if you know if, if a new government does come along. And I think that would certainly be worth a try. But I'm not optimistic that anything is going to happen uh, this year or next year in that respect. And I think that if you're right, Jim, and the homeless problem in particular is, is worse than is being reported, then you know that that is going to become a very bad, toxic situation for the sector very quickly unless unless people get on top of it. So certainly one to keep an eye. I think certainly one. I'm afraid to say that the sector may have to deal with itself rather than hope that you know politicians are going to step in. Particularly, yeah. in- what's the smart money? Do you think are we are we hurtling towards May or is this are they going to hang on right to the very end? Do you think? I, so, I mean, every, the view about this continues to to change day day by day. So evolves, evolve. You can read, you know, you read these very authoritative pieces, in, you know, as authoritative as ChatGPT. Exactly, they say you know, it's, it's nailed on for May, uh, or it's nailed on for October. I think that you know, I think the, the bottom line is the decision hasn't been made, and both Labour and Conservatives. I mean, I guess we have some other political parties, the other political parties too, but Labour and the Conservatives are certainly both on a war footing for election in either May or October. The reality, though, is that that doesn't make a tremendous amount of difference to higher education, whether it's in May or October, I mean. The election makes a tremendous amount of difference for a bunch of reasons, but the, the, the timing doesn't make a tremendous amount of difference. There's only a few months in between, including the summer. The point is, we're heading into an election cycle. That means, you know, if you wanted stuff out of government, then you know, you're going to be waiting a long time because, you know, we're heading into, as I say, heading into election cycle means there's pretty well, you know, paralysis when it comes to policymaking and everything is everything is being done with a view on, on shifting, shifting the polls. 
So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website and click subscriptions. Thanks very much to DK, Debbie, Mark, Michael, who makes the show happen. We'll be back for our weekly show in September. And until then, stay wonky. Stay wonky.